spiritual warfare and things like that and just uh, culture shock. I, I, I had no idea how soft and sort of loving and wise and intelligent she could be. I knew some of that, but when, after we had kids, I was just amazed. You know, um, and new aspects of Kim are constantly still being rolled out to me uh, as we face life together. As situations change, you see a different side of people or a different nuance to people over time. And I say all that to say that the Colossians had made this commitment to Jesus. They had, in, a, in an essence, made a marriage commitment to Christ themselves. Because that's really what this is, our relationship with Jesus. You know, and... Um, that came, as they made that, with some preconceived notions in their minds about who God is, or what God is, or how the spiritual life is lived. And they continually had notions thrown at them from their surrounding culture, or even residue of all that from their surrounding host culture as well. So, uh, you know, there were, you know, remember, as we said last week, certain things being taught in the Colossian church, or at least around the Colossian church, that were contrary to what the true Jesus was, or who the true Jesus is. And what they needed to do, uh, by the way, can I get a small bottle of water back there? What they needed to do was allow that all to be stripped away, allowing Jesus to speak for himself. Really, that was what they needed. They needed to listen to the word of God. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, they needed to listen to the Word of God, and just like me, allowing Kim to speak through experience and word in our lives, um, you know, as my wife, to know her deep, more deeply and better, the Colossians needed to listen to Jesus and allow him to define himself. Because, remember from last week, and I think this is a thought that's going to keep going through this whole uh, series, is what we live out of what we know to be true of Jesus. We live out of what we know to be true of Jesus. And so Paul continues to preach truth with a capital T to the Colossians to clear up any misunderstanding of who or what Jesus is to them. And, you know, and it's sort of one more step in their journey of faith, uh, knowing, more, knowing him more fully. And he, he says this kind of in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and, and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that remember that, that language of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is a direct counter sort of a, a, attack on the arguments of the Gnostics who sought this special knowledge and all that stuff. So we need to know the true Jesus. I mean, I think we all do as Christians, you know, whether or not we're part of this church or, you know, halfway around the world. The question today is for us, is Jesus, has he only become really prominent, just something prominent in our life that he, he kind of stick out sometimes, but, you know, has he really become preeminent in all things? Has he overtaken our whole lives? Has he become the most important, the biggest thing in our lives? And does he umbrella and cover everything in our lives? So, so for the Colossians to know Jesus, Paul says seven things in chapter 1 here in verses 15 through 23. And these seven things should serve to show his preeminence in their lives, right? And not only in their lives, but all of creation. 
Firstly, in verse 15, Paul says, he is the image of God. He is the image of God, right? And that's a big deal. If I, you know, if I put this eagle up on the screen, you know, what, what would that represent to you, right? It might represent freedom. It might represent strength and power, you know, or it may even uh, mean something negative to you, depending on your background. It represents an America. It's, It's an iconic image of our country, right? Now, if I put this up on the screen, what would that represent to you? Some, for some, it might be a very positive thing. For others, it might be a very negative thing, depending also on your background. It's an, it's an iconic image of Islam. What if I put this up on the screen? What does that represent? Or what do you think about? What are the first things you think about? You know, if you had a bad experience growing up in church, it might be a very negative picture for you if you had a good experience it might be a wonderful picture to you it's an iconic image of christianity the cross right what about the golden arches yeah right you think of big Macs and ronald mcdonald if you're old enough because i don't think ronald mcdonald's around too much anymore you might think of american capitalism you know and the the beginning of fast food and all that kind of stuff what about these lips nah You think of Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and rock and roll and everything else and sticking it to the man and you just don't, you know, all that kind of stuff. But because we have reactions to things, we have thoughts about what things are or who, who people are and all that kind of stuff. Now, if Jesus showed up this morning and, you know, came in halfway through the service and sat down in the front row in the flesh, what would, what would he represent to us? If we could talk to him, touch him, hug him, you know, what would he represent to us? Paul is saying here that he is the exact representation, the icon of God. He's not a cheap ripoff, right? Like Louis Vuitton bags I would see on the streets of Jakarta you know, as I or Bangkok when I went to Thailand. You know, on the uh, on the streets, like for sale for like ten bucks. You know, though they they weren't real; they were cheap ripoffs, right? But he is the manifestation of God in the world, right? He is the icon of God. He is the very represent, representation presence of God in his being. That's a big deal. Paul adds in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, the God of this age, referring to Satan, obviously, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's that word again. Now, Paul was a Jew in his background, right? And for him, the tabernacle or the temple of God in Jerusalem, it, it housed or it displayed the glory of God. That's, that's where the glory of God was supposed to reside. However, now for Paul, that is switched. For him now, the glory of God resides in this person of Jesus Christ, this human being that walked on the earth with us. The image of Christ represents and reveals what's hidden and what makes what's invisible visible. It's not a copy. And just like a mirror gives a a reflection of things, you know, Jesus is the revelation of God the Father to the world. Not just us as Christians, but everybody. I had an argument once with somebody and they're like, oh, like there's many ways to God. I'm like, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. Scripture teaches one way, Jesus, that's it. This is the true representation. This is the true image of God in Christ, right? It's a very big difference between Christianity and all other religions of the world is a huge difference. 
Remember, Jesus said in John 14, 9, if anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. John 1, 18 says that Jesus exegetes the Father to the world, that he reveals God to us. Hebrews 1, 3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Amen to that. By saying all this, Paul is fighting against the, all those prevailing philosophies out there you know, that they were battling with in the, in the Colossian church of high, ethereal, high, extra, special knowledge you know, that only the select few can get. He is making, actually, the God of the universe very accessible in the person of Jesus Christ. It's, you don't need to go anywhere else. If you, know, you want to know God, if you, you don't have to go punishing our body. You don't have to do anything else. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. If you want to know God, know Jesus. That's what he's saying. Secondly, he says that he is the firstborn over all creation. You know, and we usually read that firstborn as chronological order. Some have tried to even say that that means that Jesus was a created being, which would be a total lie. In Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, King David was appointed firstborn, even though he was the youngest of eight children. In, in Exodus four twenty two, God uses the term for Israel, even though they were established after creation. Right? It's a title of honor and position. In the Roman world, it meant that this person was the heir to the, the estate. So Jesus is, as Paul is saying, preeminent and he pre- over everything. He preexisted before all things. He is the ultimate ruler of all things by his title. He is heir of all creation. goes beyond just me and you. Thirdly, he says in verses 16 and 17 that, uh, that they reveal that Jesus is creator. He says, for by him all things were created... Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, so far Paul has clearly painted or portrayed Jesus as an image of God who has power over all things. He was there before the beginning. He's eating away at this wrong thinking that is seeping into or already resides in the thoughts of the Colossian church. Important to address these things. And remember we said last week that physical matter was being considered evil in some of these philosophies. So the errant thought became that Jesus wasn't a physical being and some thought Jesus to be only an angelic being and not really God. Or that you needed some special knowledge to know God rightly or you needed some sort of special sort of knowledge of the stars to control the elemental spirits of this world. And Paul pulls no punches to, to them in his love for these people. In his love for these people, he reveals them Christ was the wisdom of God which created all things. The language used here actually reveals all physical powers of the world and all spiritual powers, powers of the world as well. But not only that, that they were created by him and specifically for him as well. Which did two things. Number one, 
For the Jewish background believer in Colossia, in the Colossian church, it meant that, that this creator God that you have always worshipped from the Torah is the wisdom of God which participated in creation way back in Genesis. Jesus is who the, the Hebrew scriptures point to as the Messiah and he needs to be worshipped as God. So make no mistake about it, all you Jewish background believers, he's saying. Number two, for the Gentile believers that came out of that Gentile background, it meant Christ was superior to all things. And if you lived in fear of elemental spirits before, or you felt you needed to something special to control them, that all of that is gone and everything is found, all of your answers are found in Christ. Which is a big deal. He's supreme over all things, which should eradicate your fears. You no longer have to follow the created things. You no longer had to go to the witch doctor. You know, like in Indonesia, people would go to the witch doctor to control things or get things that they wanted. You don't have to do that in Christ. All you got to do is know Jesus. Fourthly, he claims Jesus as sustainer of the world, right? When I first moved to Indonesia, Pat Soharto was was still in power in his 32nd year of reign as a dictator. And no one up until that time dared challenge Pat Soharto. They met with a, a difficult end. He killed a whole village next to my city uh, before we got there. He killed them all and threw them all in the well because they were having you know, other thoughts other than him. You, there was actually a law that you couldn't criticize him in, in speech at any time, anywhere. And Indonesia at the time, when we first got there, everything seemed to be held together by Paharto, as they called him, right? Like the whole place was just all, all centered around him. But in that year, after we got there, <laughs> in the middle of our learning language, students, all the college students started to uh, challenge the status quo. And the end result was that Suharto fell from power and Indonesia just fell apart. We kind of hold ourselves up while the, the world burned around us. And the, the economy went in the tank. And, you know, the rupiah dropped in value. That was their currency. And one day you could buy a car for $18,000, a brand new car. But the next day you could buy that very same car for only $4,000. It was crazy. But for poor Indonesians, right, you know, the price of rice just quadrupled. And, and they just went deeper in debt and deeper in need. But the wealthy who had had like these offshore accounts, you know, with dollars in them, were buying houses and cars and vacation homes like crazy. Just the gap went wider. And this went on for a few years. And I was sitting actually with my family, my wife and my kids, in a hotel across the, across the road from the presidential palace as the, the military and the tanks marched down the street you know, in this great show of force. And they were there to oust the president that had taken over from Suharto. Stability just wasn't there in the country for a number of years. And it was a very hard time for Indonesians. And a few short years, they went through a number of different presidents. The country had merely just disintegrated under Pazzuarto. Modern physicists, if you didn't know it, and other scientists are looking for the unified theory of everything. You know, that, that, that one thing, that one theory that, that, that tells us how everything is held together in the universe. 
Stephen Hawking said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. What holds it all together? What makes it all tick, right? Well, I'm sorry to say that Paul stated this 2,000 years ago, whether you believe it or not, to the Colossians. We waste so much time looking for this. Jesus holds all things together, and I truly believe that. Things do not disintegrate under his rule. Revelations 4 says it's for his pleasure that all this was created and all this exists. Hebrews 1.3 says he holds all things together by his powerful word. And we must remember all this stuff in light of this pandemic and this recent election and the, the emotional upheaval in our country and all that kind of stuff that Jesus is still sovereign over all things. There is no real crisis in his eyes. He's not, you know, a sustainer of all things. He's not really surprised by what's happened or what's transpired. He may not be happy with some of the things. So, and we have to remember that a perceivably horrible situation can actually turn out to be God doing something great. You remember Joseph is sold into slavery. He later becomes major ruler in a country and he saves his people, right? He saves his whole family. Same people that threw him into slavery. As a matter of fact, the economic and political instability in Indonesia served to open up doors for the gospel to go forth in many ways. I don't know if you know Aceh, the, the northernmost province in Indonesia where the tsunami hit and where I served in the, the last few months of our, our uh, time there, was closed to all Christian influence. That, that tragedy opened the doors. Christians are living there now, witnessing to the, uh, their Achenese counterparts and all that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. That, not wonderful that, that the tragedy happened, but it's wonderful what the result of it was. So, what's God doing in America? I don't presume to know. I can't read his thoughts. But as one of his children, we should never live in fear. Never. Even if we lose everything, we still have him for eternity. That's a big deal. Fifthly, Paul says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church. Now the Colossians may have lost sight of this at some level, at some way. Head speaks of sort of the the source and the authority of a body, right? Without the head, you you don't have any direction. You don't even have life, really. Everything the church does, he's saying, uh, does and is, should flow out of who Jesus is, what Jesus commands, what Jesus teaches us, and what he calls us to. And likewise, we've got to realize the head of the church is not me, this church, this local church, 6-8, is not Jason as pastor or the pastoral council, right? As some ruling body, body, it is Jesus. And when leadership gets that, it makes a big difference. Sometimes we lose sight of these things and it takes us years to get back to center, right? Philosophies enter the church which seem wise, business practices enter the church, you know, which seem very, very practical. But bottom line, the church makes its decisions based on Jesus, his leading of the Holy Spirit, and our unique relationship to him. Financial decisions aren't necessarily made on business principles, although those things sometimes help us, right? But they're made on faith and risk and love that God calls us to, growing out of our trust in in, in our head, who is Jesus. How we treat each other should flow out of Christ. 
how we approach and interact with the outside world should reflect his love for them. Maybe we should get rid of the word leader and just replace it with servant to remind ourselves constantly of what we really are. Because our purpose and direction and vision and mission are guided always by the Holy Spirit, anchored in the word, who is Jesus. Number six, Paul says that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The beginning, he rules it. We've heard this. Christ created the church, Matthew 16, 18. He says to Peter, you know, you are my rock. I'm going to build this church on you. Jesus was not surprised by this. Some people are like against the organized church. Jesus set out to create this, by the way. And there are things that are necessary about it, right? So Jesus started the church. He's not surprised by it. He is the firstborn. He is the supreme one of the church. And he leads his church even beyond death. And ha- you, Because as he's risen from the dead, so shall his church. I truly believe I will live forever with Christ as my king. And finally, number seven, in verse 19, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, remember, Jews listening to this or reading this would have remembered the temple and the fullness of God in the temple. And God's residence there, when, you know, they would think of that terminology and that idea. God's fullness now, though, dwelt in Christ. In other words, all that that God is took up residence in this human being, this very physical person of flesh and blood, Jesus. And again, in Jesus' words, if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. That's amazing. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, you've got to listen to that. All the fullness, all the fullness, right? Paul's breaking down arguments. He's replacing all these arguments with Jesus, nothing else. Because this phrase, all his fullness, was a a term familiar also to the Gnostics, which for them it meant the sum total of all divine power and attributes, right? So that's what they're looking, that's what they're searching for, by this all this special knowledge and these practices that they do. And Paul uses this term no less than eight times in this book to show that Christ alone is all the fullness of God in this world. No need. There is no need, absolutely no need, to look anyplace else, right? There's no other special knowledge other than knowing Jesus. And these were seven truths about Christ that you know, given to the Colossians to counteract all these false philosophies, right? And now Paul wraps up this argument in this new, te- this next uh, set of verses by reminding them what his wonderfully power, this wonderfully powerful God of all things, Jesus, has done for them. He says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, all things, not just people, but all things. God loves creation, right? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight 
without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So notice Paul's intentional use of phrases like all things, continually tying Jesus and his authority and his reach over all aspects of creation, seen and unseen, you know, to, visible, invisible, to battle this Gnostic, weird Gnostic or antinomian, which if you don't know what that term means, listen to the sermon last week, or this ascetic attitude that is that is pervading in the church, which tended towards, you know, feeling all physicality is evil or angels or special knowledge or, you know, astronomy and all that kind of stuff. So the focus is to reconcile to himself all, and the, and the scope is all things, and, and the result is peace in the world, which we all really want, and the means is through his cross or through his blood, his sacrifice. Scripture says in Isaiah 53, 5, by his wounds we are healed. Do you really believe it? Romans 8 declares Jesus as the one who intercedes for us before the Father. And that, and it also claims that, uh, Romans also claims that there's no one that seeks God, that everybody is turned away. We did not set out to pursue God in this world. It's God who pursues us. That's, by the way, one of the most different things in Christianity is that God pursues us. He loves enough to come after us when we were unable to, to even care about it, right? Or even to do it ourselves. You know, we were aliens, we were foreigners, we were enemies in our mind, which led to evil acts in our, in our lives. Some more evil than other, I get it. You know, maybe you're a really nice person, but you still, if you have said one little lie, you are in danger of the, high, the fires of hell, right? It's just the God's honest truth. But he has. He reconciled us to himself. He did the work. And it kind of reminds us of all the temple sacrifices. He presents us free from blemish and accusations. In other words, you know, uh, because of Christ's actions on the cross, we are brought before the Father. When we stand before God, now all he sees on me is Christ's perfect record. He doesn't see all my sin and all my faults and all that stuff. And as simple as the gospel is, it's hard to keep in perspective, especially when you live in a world that is constantly bombarding you with garbage, with other thoughts, trying to twist that in you. Because you've got to understand, the gospel is contrary to human thought, isn't it? No one gets anything for free in this world, do they? Right? The concept of grace is found in Jesus is foreign. It drives against our very nerve. America tells us to fight for our rights, to jockey for position, to gain value by accomplishment, to to gain value by wealth and education or being around the right people, the most important and powerful people. We're we're taught to guard our rights and and to seek our our place in the world. And even when we marry up with Jesus, we don't always fully get it. We stand at the wedding altar that day and we don't fully get all this stuff and we sometimes really don't even believe it all. But Jesus does the work in reconciling us to himself. 
God sees now his righteous life upon me when he looks on me. Thank God for that. And Paul uses the words established and firm here in this last verse. Maybe he's using this in the fact that Colossae was situated in a very uh, earthquake-prone area. So he, he, you know, he's saying stabilize yourself in, in the grace of Christ. Root yourself there. And when all these other philosophies and all these other thought lives you know, shake apart when trouble comes and, and pandemics come and things like that, you'll be fine. You'll weather it. You know, some see that band called Jesus Our Friend. Jesus Our Friend. True. One aspect. Over history, people have tried to uncover the true Jesus. You know, we've had philosophers and theologians and the Jesus Seminar, which used to, to, I don't know if it still does, meets every year to discuss this stuff. We've had Newsweek and Time Magazine articles, ad nauseum, the real Jesus, blah, 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 and all that stuff. Some see him as a good teacher, a moral man, a political agitator, you know, a social reformer, a socialist or a communist, a sage, an uh, apocalyptic sort of fanatic, a Jewish peasant cynic, and all that kind of garbage. So... Some saw him as the first Christian and not really Christ. Kant saw him as a moral teacher making things better, sort of the moral Darwinian approach to Christianity. Schweitzer saw him as someone obsessed with the end times. One man, John Dominic Croson, said we must add to the Gospels. Hear that? Got to get some more special knowledge. We got to add to the Gospels to find the true Jesus. He proposed 52 additional documents, one of which he created himself. That's kind of arrogant. Gandhi loved Jesus, but he didn't think Christians looked much like him. The men on the road to Emmaus said he was a prophet. He was great in word and deed. Jews were looking for a Davidic king. The Essenes were actually looking for two messiahs, a kingly one and a priestly one. And Peter nailed it. Peter nailed it when he said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You come from and you are God. I collect Jesus paraphernalia. If you go down to my office, there's a windowsill with a bunch of stuff. Here's a little Jesus puppet, finger puppet. I could talk to him, you know. So what do you want me to do today, Jesus? Mm, I don't know. Um, Here's a Jesus piggy bank. Apparently there's no way to get the money out because he just takes it. Because there's no... Which I don't think is true. And then here's the dancing with Jesus, you know, like, and it's got like one of those things when you move it, he's dancing back and forth. And he's got all these little dances, you know, the, the water walk, the last supper stomp, the, temp, the temple slam, the temptation tango, you know, stuff like that. So if you ever want to just, you know, if you're ever in a store and you see a little Jesus paraphernalia thing, buy it, I will pay you back. I love that stuff. We are not much different than people of Jesus' day. We're not much different than anybody really throughout history or even in the pop culture around us at times right now. Some of what those outside of the church say about Jesus is absolutely true. Much of it is very, very wrong. But the sad fact is that if we interview the church We see the same thing in the church at times. 
We have these little battles going on in our hearts and our minds. What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And all that stuff. Well, let me ask you the question. How do you know what you know is true and right or good about God? The church historically has known many things uh, and been convinced of them from the scriptures, which has led them to great action. The church... um, you know, remember Martin Luther comes along, right? And he challenges what the church knew, uh, overturning the Christian worldview in many ways. And now we could never see ourselves believing or knowing on the other side of that argument, at least as Protestants. And I think we're correct in that way. Galileo came along with his heliocentric versus geocentric arguments. You know, he, you know, the church believed that the, the sun result, revolved around us, right? And they, they believed that from some poetic language in the Old Testament, which they should never have drawn that conclusion. And maybe from watching the sky and all that stuff. But, you know, they, 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 they were, were hard on that. And when he said, no, the sun, we revolve around the sun, they said, oh my gosh, and they tried him for something that they knew. But now we would just laugh at that, right? The Crusades, and I say Christians very lightly, but I also would say that the Crusades have a lot of defensive uh, language around them rather than being offensive, or going on the offensive. But the Crusades, Christians, knowing, you know, convinced that they were doing God's will to go and kill Muslims. Are you convinced? Do you know for a fact that God would be glorified if you killed somebody that he actually died for? Apartheid was a theological construction. Seems like Christians thought it was right. Slavery in America was largely a theological construction. Or at least it was justified by it in some circles. Christians knew it was right to subjugate and take the names of blacks away, you know, and, you know, when they got out of line to punish them or even kill them in the most brutal ways. The Southern Baptist Convention was born on that issue, and they didn't renounce it until 1996, if I don't get my... I know it was in the 90s. I might be wrong about the year. Who made up the Nazi party? Was it Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims? No, Germany was Christian in name, at least, right? And they knew it was right to kill Jews. They listened to Hitler's lies, and they followed along. But let me say this, and let me be clear about this, because I think we, 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 we say that stuff, and we make a blanket statement about people in history, and it's unfair to them. Because the reason the gospel has survived throughout all this garbage is that there have always been many heartfelt, thoughtful Christians who saw Jesus for who He really is. Always. The Gospel is powerful. Christians who did not give up on the true Jesus. Christians who did not buy into the Nazi party and they worked underground. Christians who did not buy into apartheid or, or a slavery and they worked on the, the, the underground railroad in America maybe. Things like that. 
while others were claiming to be of Christ, claiming these were spiritual impetus and spiritual things that they were doing, they were just really operating out of a false image, or even worse, they were just using his powerful name as a way to justify their own evil. We really don't know what's in a person's heart. It's really hard. But Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So what we find out is that God preserves his word despite what we do with it. And you can't judge a belief system on its abusers. Let me say that twice, important. You cannot judge a belief system on its abusers. We can't denounce Christianity because of abuse. We, we can only estimate an individual's grasp of the gospel and their practice of it. Is it rooting in their heart, rooting in their mind, and coming out in their behavior? We have to be aware that not everyone claiming to be of Christ is really of Christ. Nor is everyone on the same level of spiritual maturity. We should be really aware of what we know and how important it is because oftentimes people have gotten things very, very wrong. Paul talks about what we know in 1 Corinthians 8 and 13. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So when I throw my heart at God, I am fully known and I can know more. If I get, have had the gift of prophecy, he says, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. See, all the mysteries, all that special knowledge, right? If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing, he says. I married Kim. I knew what I was doing that day. I'm glad I did it, by the way. But I grow in knowing her every single day of my life that we're together. So we came to Jesus. We didn't fully understand him, but we still need to grow in him. He may have taken a place of prominence in our lives. He may like show how important he is every once in a while or in certain ways. But we desire that he become preeminent in all things in our outlook and our lives because remember we 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 live out of what we know to be true of jesus and that comes out in orthopraxy orthopraxy is right practice it's how i what i'm doing it's what i'm doing with the gospel what i'm doing with this message of jesus how is it coming out how am i reacting to the world around me what am i doing with people but you've got to remember that that orthodoxy or right belief, what we believe to be true about Jesus is not just equally important, may even be more important because it defines who we are and how we live and it directs our right practice. So wrestle with it. Wrestle with Jesus. Get down and dirty. 
be in the word be in in a quiet time every single day you know kim was reading this article this week or book or something like that where the guy said you know you can't rely on the sermon every week if that's how you're feeding yourself you're not getting enough you've got to take it on yourself to feed your your heart and your mind with the words of christ day in and day out and we're going to talk about that a little bit next week in the discipleship culture that we want to see build even stronger here and let me let me pray for us as we as we close this out father we thank you that you are king of kings and lord of lords we thank you that you are supreme and above all things that you have you have done what is necessary you have pursued us and you have done what is necessary to redeem and reconcile all of creation to yourself we don't know what that's going to look like in the future but we know what it can look like now in in many ways And we ask, Father, that you would just bring us deeper and closer and more intimate with you so that we can walk well in this this world. Right now, Christians are needed more than anything else, not only in our message, but in how we exemplify you to the world around us. We ask for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going to practice the uh, Lord's table this morning. We have these little cups. I... You know, just for uh, COVID reasons where you can peel off the bottom and there's a wafer in there and then you can peel off the top and the wine is in the top or grape juice, actually. Um, But as we go into that, let me pray us into it. And then we want to recite together the, the Apostles' Creed. So let me pray for us as we go into that. Lord Jesus, we know that on that night that you were betrayed, you you took out this bread and this wine, and I wish we could have been there that night just to see that. Maybe someday we'll practice that with you together, truly together. But you said that this blood was shed for us. You said this 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 bread was broken for us. They symbolize your body and your blood that pays the price for us to have peace and eternal life once more with God the Father in heaven. We ask ask that that reality would become not only a deeper, more rounded out reality in our own hearts, but it also would go out to the world around us that really needs that message more than anything else right now. And we denounce all the arrogance that thinks it knows the answer out there. We ask that you would break people down and make them open to hear you once again. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have the Apostles' Creed. If you want to stand with me, we're, we're just going to recite this together so you guys can follow along with me as we, as we do that. I'm going to stand out front and do this. Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And Father, we acknowledge these truths. We want to worship the true Jesus. 
And so we pray, Father, that you would be with us as we come and celebrate that at the table right now. From now until the end of the service.